cancel culture is affecting us like nothing else. We have this going on, but it's actually been going on since the 60s. We're here to talk with the new author of a book called The Desecrators, which deals with cancel culture. It also tells us what's going on inside the church, inside the church in America, delves into the bishops themselves and President Donald Trump, because one of the authors of this book is Deal Hudson. Deal Hudson, the former editor at Crisis Magazine, the former professor and Catholic activist, and really an activist with the presidents. Remember, he was the Catholic outreach guy for both Bush and then for President Donald Trump. You're going to want to stay tuned for this conversation with Deal Hudson. Deal Hudson, welcome to the program. John Henry, it's been way too long, and I'm just amazed that don't look any older, look exactly, <laughs> you know, youthful and vigorous. Great to see you. Good to be with you, Deal. Let's uh, let's start as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So you've written a book again. And uh, this one called Desecrators, uh, available through TAN. What is Desecrators all about? Well, you know, Matt Schlapp and I have known each other since uh, 1999 when we both worked on Catholic outreach for President Bush. And actually, he and Mercy met at the first event I put on uh, after uh, Bush was elected president. So I'm responsible for that duo and the five girls. We talked about doing a book on the whole cancel culture, wokeness, white privilege, all that. And I, you know, and I said, Matt, you know, we we need to not write just a, a screed like everybody else is writing. We need to get to the foundation of what's what's really under all of these collective insanities, right? And it became very clear once you began to look at the attack on the nuclear family. I mean, obviously, a pro-abortion back there. Uh, but you took the attack on the nuclear family, uh, the attack on education, on the great books, uh, the attack on the Constitution of the United States, uh, the attack on white people in general being all racist by virtue of their color. I thought that's what we fought a civil war over. Uh, and I, you know, go on and on and on. And of course, the the attack on gender, uh, on sexuality, you know, there's no such thing as fixed male and female anymore. It's whatever you want to be. So you've got little girls in, in grade school identifying themselves as wolves or uh, cats. So we found that this attack was basically a desecration, meaning an attack on all we hold sacred. And we know life is sacred, but what else, what else is sacred? What is sacred is our understanding of God's creation, our understanding of there being one God, monotheism itself. The idea that natural law is a reflection grows out of God's law, the idea of the Ten Commandments, the idea of the supremacy of love as a virtue and what love means. Uh, so it's a desecration on uh, at every level beginning with life, beginning with the family, sexuality, the meaning of education, the meaning of community, the meaning of 
nationhood and self-governance and the meaning, obviously, of ultimate con- our ultimates in life. Uh, are we going to begin with the understanding that we're all created in the image and likeness of God? Or are we going to begin with the sort of Sartre and existentialist assumption that we all define who we are from the very beginning and you can define yourself any way you like? I've been wanting to ask you this for a long time, your background in Catholic activism and then in in politics, particularly presidential politics. Is it fair to call Joe Biden the second Catholic president of the United States? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I either have to laugh or throw up. What you see in Biden is what the American bishops let happen to the Catholic Church in America. In other words, all Biden and all the sort of Pelosi Catholics like him are the product of a group of bishops, not all, every one of them, of course, but a group of bishops who did not stand up for Catholic teaching at its most fundamental level, the right to life, even when things like partial birth abortion came up, even when things uh, like funding American citizens, funding Planned Parenthood, the Mexico City policy. Uh, no, Biden's a product of the, of the Church of the United States. Today's bishopric that we see ongoing in the United States, it's, it's like that all over the world right now. It's actually somewhat better to, in the United States, which is hard to believe if, if you're in America and you, you're looking around. But what have you seen? You've been in the Catholic scene for a long time. You've been able to witness, you know, Catholicism, and I'd say Catholicism among the bishops, if you will, uh, or the high-ranking clergy in America under JP2, under Benedict, under Francis. Um, what, do you, what have you seen in that evolution? The thing that shocked me the most when I started mixing it up with the bishops, even before I was helping the Bush White House, I mean, in Crisis Magazine, is how much they really hated Republicans, just by virtue of being Republicans. How they really had no no time for pro-lifers, didn't want them in their hair. And then when I got over to the Vatican representing the president, meeting with members of the Curia, how much they really disliked John Paul II. So while John Paul II was pope, you had a a vast curia of German bishops and others uh, led by Cardinal Martini, 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 who were trying to undermine him at every turn. So as a convert to the faith, based upon the beauty of the church, the truth. And so I'm thinking, you know, this isn't exactly, Don Henry, what I expected when I converted at the age of 34. When you reflect on the sort of reality, if you will, the current reality anyway, the church in America, and really much of the world, especially the West, Christ's own statement about you're either for me or you're against me, really comes to mind. And we have such a rocking in the church today. Um, what are your thoughts on on Christ's sort of finality and the fooling that the leadership of the church seems to be doing with that? You know, I taught at a Jesuit school for a while, and there was it's all about nuance and casuistry and, you know, trying to make the round peg fit in the square hole and all that. And so I think one thing that this disastrous situation we find ourselves in right now has made a lot of people wake up to that very thing that you mentioned. You're either for me or against me. And I would say that uh, 
in my experience, people try to straddle the fence, especially try to straddle the fence when I'm a good Catholic while being pro-birth, pro-birth control, uh, no concern for the divorce rate, no, no concern for the one parent families among African-Americans, which is, I think, risen over 70 percent, you know, no concern for the uh, parts of society that are really suffering from a lack of Christian and especially Catholic leadership on the meaning of sexuality, on the meaning of marriage, on, on the meaning of the family. And I'm just stunned at the lack of courage, the lack of commitment, you know, and Somehow, uh, in my political work, I, I began hearing that to be pro-life, you were Republican, and since the bishops were all against the Republicans, the bishops ended up being against pro-lifers. And that, of course, is an irony, you know, which uh, everybody can see at first glance. And I begin to realize, you know, that to be and this became true. You couldn't be pro-life and be a Democrat in Congress, which has literally become true when your last pro-life Democrat uh, is no longer there. And so uh, what kind of country has we come to when a Catholic politician to be a member of the Democratic Party or Democrat Party has to be pro-abortion, is required to be pro-abortion, or to be on the Supreme Court under Biden is going to have to be pro-abortion, whether they're Catholic or not. This, you know, this calls for, a, we need a truckers movement in the United States. I love your truckers. I am, I brace them. Uh, this just proves to me that all your, all your real Canadians came from Texas, you know, that they fought for the battle of independence. Because what we're seeing is you guys are being an example to the world all revolutions happen in the streets, John Henry. You can go back as far as you want in the history of revolutions. The American Revolution began in the streets of Boston. French Revolution began in the streets of Paris. The Russian Revolution started in the streets of Petrograd. And so the fact that truckers have gotten in the street means they're putting themselves on the line. And it's, it's so inspiring. It is inspiring. And you're actually the perfect person to ask this question of, because you've been a Catholic activist for so long, you've been out in the streets, as it were, fighting, often having to fight the very bishops that we're trying to support in, in, in the faith. But um, what is a way forward for Catholics today? We're getting beat up on, on so many levels. And very often, uh, we've heard the saying that, that you know, it's, it's the laity that will save the church. Um, and how does the laity do that? What, uh, what steps should we take? I think it's the mothers who will save the church. You know, Aquinas said there's no stronger love, natural love, than that between a mother and a child. And it's sort of the foundation of morality in a sense, if you look at it just from a natural point of view, that bond, which is you know, so which reflects the Trinity itself, right? And uh, the future of the church and the and the future of you might call it the sacred, the very thing that's being uh, attacked right now, will require three things. It'll require people 
uh, following John Paul II, be not afraid, not be intimidated by people yelling at them, not be intimidated by name calling or public shaming or threats. You know, your truckers, I mean, they're, they have not been intimidated. They are still there on the streets of Ottawa and elsewhere. They're on the bridge. And the second thing they're going to have to do is really be able to articulate what they believe in, both as Catholics and as Americans or as Canadians. In other words, why do they want to defend the sacred traditions of the past, whether that's a Western tradition or they want to put it in the founding tradition? Uh, and I and number three, it's going to take a deep spiritual commitment. It's going to take a prayer, the prayer life that says, Lord, I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'm going to look in the mirror and I'll say, I'm going to believe it today. I'm going to believe it one more day, as Carl, the famous evangelical theologian Carl Bart used to say. And not only am I going to believe it, I'm going to let people know I believe it. I just bought a whole bunch of American flag pins. I wish I had it on right now, but I'm putting them on all my clothes. I mean, I just bought it like a few days ago. I mean, I've already got the flag in the yard. And as I say in the book, John Henry, I have a chapter on symbols, using our symbols. What would happen if everyone who voted for Donald Trump on the same day put a flag in the yard? 75 million flags in the yard. That would cause a tidal wave of anger from the desecrators. Why? Because number one, it, it, would, it would symbolize, we're not afraid of you. you here I am. I'm not going to hide from you. Here I am. I voted for Trump. They don't represent the big majority of this country. They may, may represent a, a, long, a strong plurality, which is entirely controlled by the media and so forth. But we are here and we are going to fight you. That's what that would represent. There was an early movement in the pro-life movement that was all about uh, making a big tent. In order to do that, they basically shoved Catholics, perhaps some Christians too, to the back of the bus. If you came to the March for Life with, uh, with a crucifix or with, a, uh, God forbid, a, a picture of Our Lady— you were told you could either leave those here in March or you can just go home. Um, what is your takeaway on that, the approach that you'd advocate for uh, this kind of building a big tent and, and where we need to go with it? When I first came to Washington and was asked to work with Governor Bush, I met with Ralph Reed. He was handling the evangelical outreach and I was handling the Catholic outreach. And we we met off and planned, we said, we agreed we wanted to do something that would be a unified effort. And of course, we were all familiar with how, you know, the history of anti-Catholicism among evangelicals. And Ralph uh, didn't have a, a, a iota of that. And of course, he was then head of the Christian coalition. And so we began messaging and having uh, events bringing Catholics and evangelicals together on, you know, on the ground rather than writing documents and having 20, 30 people sign them. I think since that was 1999-2000, I think here in the year 2022, 
I think we've seen a real healing of the historical rift between Catholics and evangelicals through their political action. It hasn't come through doctrinal uh, changes on either side. It's come because of the pro-life music uh, movement primarily, and people getting over this sort of, well, I'm the only, we're the only ones saved versus you say you're the only ones saved. I think that's, except for a few places in Florida, I think that's pretty much gone now. Now, there are some very controversial questions because, of course, you were uh, heading up Catholics for Trump, and um, Trump did some very controversial things from a Catholic perspective. One of the things was, you know, the the LGBT push and uh, the other, the vaccine push. So I'd like to have you address both of those, if you don't mind. So first of all, with the appointment of Rick Grinnell, of, and, and, and Rick going out publicly saying he's, done, you know, Trump has done more for the LGBT community than any president in, in U.S. history. And of course, you could see some of that. He put out a very popular commercial because of that. How did you take that as a, as a Catholic and what would you respond to criticisms on that basis? He hasn't pushed the vaccine. He just recommends people get it. He hasn't, he's against mandates, completely against. I mean, I've, I was at Mar-a-Lago with him. He talked about it. And we had a big golf tournament down there, 30 people in Trump. But he made it clear because he had gotten all that criticism. He said, not for mandates, not telling people what to do. He's just saying in his case, he thinks, now I'm vaccinated. I have the booster. I hope I don't end up with a heart attack, you know, based upon a blood clot, which seems to be going around a lot. Now, LGBT, uh, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with any action toward that community that tries to normalize their sexual values. I'm all for equal rights in the workplace. I'm all for equal pay, and I'm all for mutual respect, which George Bush was too, by the way. But when it comes to anything that would, any kind of legislation or educational policy that would seek to normalize in the minds of the nation, in minds especially of our young people, that this is normal sexual behavior I'm, I'm opposed to. One of the things that uh, your book is, is particular about is the cancel culture. Uh, this really took a foothold with uh, the whole Black Lives Matter movement. What, what's your takeaway from that? Um, and what have you seen? Where do you think it's going? I don't know if you're as old as I am. I think you're a little younger. But back when I was in college at the University of Texas, and existentialism was sweeping through the campus along with the anti-Vietnam riots. This was the seed, the seed time of this attitude that each individual is autonomous. There is no normative understanding of human beings. Uh, there is no common standard of right and wrong, virtues and vices. You can invent yourself. You can invent your own values. Uh, like Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, saying that human life is like a blank uh, chalkboard. You draw your own picture of existence. It doesn't have to match up to anybody else's because there is no common understanding of human existence. So this has been, and then you went through feminism, then you went through multiculturalism, which was very pernicious because it was really not about multiple voices as much as it was getting rid of established Western voices. 
Then you go into this uh, thing we call deconstruction of postmodernism, which is philosophically a direct attack on the notion of truth and knowledge. I mean, and so all of this has been growing since the 60s. And I lived through every step of it, and I fought every step of it, obviously not very effectively, because it's taken hold. And especially took hold in education and in departments of education, schools of education, schools of journalism, so that all those people that graduated six to six, since the 60s out of journalism, out of education, what have they done? They've gone on to educate generation after generation of people to their implicitly nihilistic point of view. I mean, they, they don't come out as nihilists. They come out as sort of multiculturalists, or they come out as feminists, or they come out as something where underneath that, and this is what we do in our book, underneath that, we show that it's a, a rejection of human nature, of any kind of absolute truth, or any kind of moral norms. What do parents do today? They are raising their kids in this most confusing of times, like probably the world has never, ever experienced, just because of that confusion at every single level. Um, there's not a world war, so to speak, on the body, but there's a world war on the soul, arguably thus more severe than anything we've ever experienced. Um, what are parents to do in such a culture, in such a time, uh, with their children, uh, anywhere from the little ones to the teenagers? What, uh, what are we to do? The parents need to reignite their own minds and hearts. In other words, they need to remember the basic values and ideas that, that they stand for. They need to learn to articulate them. They need to have their kids seeing them read books. They, their kids need to see them reading scripture, obviously, but, you know, Moby Dick, Billy Budd, right? The uh, Aristotle, Plato, Thomas Aquinas, uh, we could go on. Do the, do the kids see the parents spending half an hour, an hour reading? Or are they all watching TV? Or are they all watching, you know, Marvel comic uh, movies, which are very entertaining, but life is not entertainment. And we're not in a situation where, inter where entertainment should get in the way of parents becoming a representative of the culture that's being destroyed. The children, you don't just sit there and put books in children's hands and say, read it. You, you let the children see you doing it, and then the children want to do it. You know, they want to be like mommy and daddy. Between fourth and fifth grade, I read uh, three 1,000-page novels, Gone with the Wind, uh, Advise and Consent, and uh, what was, oh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Now, I didn't think it was a big deal until I told people later on I had done it. And they looked at me like, did you play baseball? Yeah, I was the best hitter on the team. I played baseball. I played outside. But I also read books. Reading changes you. It changes your life. It deepens your understanding of yourself and your world. It it. It gives you weapons because it helps you see into human nature, helps you to see what it is that motivates people, what it is that people fear, 
I mean, reading is the way in which uh, a hardened soul are strengthened. And I can't, I mean, I know that's a big claim, but I, there isn't any other thing other than prayer, other than lip, you know, liturgical experience that can solidify a human being, an individual, a parent, like reading. One of the underpinnings, I think, of a lot of what we've seen both in the secular culture and in the church, probably more sadly in the church than anything else, that, that we're now hearing echoed in Rome, but at least from the American perspective, it came from one of the most unlikely sources because it was the priest who headed up probably one of the most successful Catholic kind of feel-good rah-rah outreaches, the, the, the Catholic project headed up by then Father and now Bishop Barron. But his message that I found controversial and probably people, many didn't, was the empty health theory. Now we're hearing that sort of everywhere. But to me anyway, it, it underpins so much of modernism and modern day laissez-faire when it comes to the spiritual life, when it comes to acting morally in your, in your, in your, um, in your existence. What, what's, your, what's your take on, on that question? You know, I went back and I read von Balthasar's book where, you know, a lot of people are getting this idea that if there's a hell, nobody's in it. Uh, and Balthazar doesn't say that. He just says he hopes there's nobody in hell. Now, that's not saying there is nobody in hell. I understand human life, and I think any Christian understands human life, as pointing toward an eternal divide. There's a hell. And if you are not prepared to meet God, you will not meet him. You will, you will meet something else, something something hellish. I understood when I became a Christian, even as a Baptist, and I certainly understood it when I became Catholics, even though the Jesuits tried to talk me out of it. If our salvation is guaranteed, then we should, why are we even moaning and groaning? Why are we feeling guilty? Why are we striving to do the right thing? Because we know you know, as Paul says in our hearts, where we are headed and that there will be a judgment. So, I mean, we can we can do all the sophisticated arguments about Balthazar and heaven and all that. And of course, I mean, I'll say right now, I hope nobody's in hell, but that I think people are in hell. And I think people will be in hell. And I think that's what the drama of existence is. It's and everybody, everybody's living it. Everybody's living that drama. Deal Hudson, your book, The Desecrators with Matt Slaps, available through Tan Books. Where can people get in touch with you, Deal? Well, let's see. I have an email address. I don't mind giving it to you. It's Hudson, it's Hudson Deal at Gmail. They can also get to me through Facebook. I have uh, a Facebook page, Deal Wyatt Hudson. And you know what? John Henry, I learned long ago, I answer every email, I answer every phone call, I answer every text message, and I answer every Facebook message, because I think that's how you should treat people, with respect, even when they're coming after you, nothing to be afraid of. If they, if they have taken the time to reach out to you, they deserve an answer. Deal. Thanks so much for being with us on this episode of the John Henry Reston Show. God bless you.
And thanks for the great work you've been doing for so long. And God bless all of you. We'll see you next time on The John Henry Weston Show. We have been warning everyone who would listen and attempting to build up alternative platforms to continue to reach you. We have established ourselves on all sorts of platforms I'm going to explain in a minute, but the most important thing to do is come direct to LifeSiteNews.com because there we will always be. But we've also established ourselves on platforms like Parler and MeWe, and our videos can be found on Rumble as well. We would love to see each of you on those platforms too, as they are not censoring or suppressing the truth that we are sharing every single day. More than these alternative social media platforms, we highly encourage you to subscribe to our email newsletter. We have really built up a large list of loyal readers on our email marketing platform, and we have prepared several backup plans for, well, I want to say if, but it's really when, we are removed from our current platform as well. Additionally, I really encourage you, as I said before, to make it a regular habit to go directly to lifesitenews.com. Make it your homepage. While all of these different platforms are an excellent way to curate your news, going directly to our website means that you will never encounter any censorship or sudden loss of LifeSite News reporting. Here's the thing. We will never stop sharing the truth. We founded this organization with the mission to be the life, family, and culture source for men and women who seek to know the truth. We have established a track record of honest reports, and this will never stop, even with censorship happening around the globe. Again, I'm encouraging you to join us on Parler, MeWe, Rumble, and on our email list. You can find all the direct links in the description of this video. May God bless you and keep you, and we are so thankful that you've chosen to follow and support LifeSite News. I'm John Henry Weston, co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News.